You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Brian Froud is the author of Fairies, The World of the Dark Crystal, The Fairies Oracle, Lady Connington's Fairy Album, Lady Connington's Pressed Fairy Book, and The Goblin Companion, A Field Guide to Goblins. Wendy Froud is an artist, and she's worked on A Midsummer Night's Fairy Tale, The Winter Child, The Fairies of Spring Cottage. They've worked on the design for creatures in the films Labyrinth and The Dark Crystal. Their latest book together is a collaboration, The Heart of the Fairy Oracle. Thank you for joining me, Brian and Wendy. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, uh, one of the things that strikes me uh, about your work is that you guys have a, a vision of the fairy world and of fairies that is at once unique but taps into a universal vision of fairies. And I'd like each of you to talk, to tell me first, Brian, um, when you first remember seeing, thinking, or reading about a fairy. Well, I suppose the first time it really struck me um, about fairies was actually coming across... Um, uh, an illustrator called Arthur Rackham, a turn-of-the-century English illustrator, and he illustrated fairy tales. But in it, um, in particular, was his drawings of uh, trees, and the trees all had faces. And this was a direct re- reminder to me when, as a child, I was always climbing trees, always crawling around under bushes and finding secret places, that that's how I felt about trees and nature, that they had soul and personality. And that set me off on the path um, of uh, drawing these things. Wendy? Well, I think really that I was born believing in fairies because with a name like Wendy, I was named for the Wendy and Peter Pan. So I couldn't help it. (laughs) And my mother read to me, uh, you know, as soon as I was able to understand what she was reading about read fairy stories, starting with children's fairy stories, going to the, you know, the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis. So I've always believed in fairies. One of the things that that interests me uh, about your work is the kind of detail that you achieve, uh, the, the detail that you achieve. Could you talk about collaborating and working together and, and apart in creating these worlds that seem so detailed and so full of uh, particulars that the re- that are invisible, in a sense, to, to most of us? Well, I suppose when I started, a long, long time ago, <laughs> um, children's books were very simple. Um, bright colors and splashes of color and form. And I thought, well, this is not quite how the world is. I always wanted um, the picture like to tell a story. And so I started uh, drawing uh, for children's books that had hills and roads and trees and something over the horizon. Um, And then as I developed and started to draw uh, trolls in particular, it seemed to me there was something in in the complexity of it. There was something that happened in their clothing, in the things that hung off it told something of their life story 
I suppose. And so, um, without putting words into Wendy's mouth, I know that when she works for some of my drawings, that you really run with that, don't you, with the putting all the details in? Yes, you did just put those words in my ah. mouth. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I, uh, I get great pleasure out of um, working with Brian's imagery when I sculpt, when I create puppets, when I make dolls, um, being able to look at all of the detail, the characterization that he has in his work and bring that into three dimensions is, is such a pleasure um, and creates such a rich world. It's really, it's really fun. You know, one of the things that you guys do remarkably well is to create characters and, and to create these characters that externalize parts of all of us that we do not admit, do not allow, do not expose. And, and I'm wondering if you could talk about how much of that comes from within yourselves, that these characters are the your internal selves exposed, and how much of it is, is a creation of, of when, you're, when you are pursuing this vision? Well, one of my missions is to make people believe in what I do, and what I do in particular is paint um, spiritual beings. Um, and they are very problematical because um, I'm painting something that is normally invisible. So I'm trying to make that visible. So I want you to believe. So there is something that happens on the outside has to be very specifically about what's happening on the inside. Um, and that's a struggle, actually. That's very, very difficult. And um, the way I work uh, often involves um, drawing in sketchbooks and, and doodling. And then there's a voice that seems to tell me if a line is right, if I'm making a shape that's right, you know, saying, no, this is not right, this is wrong. And then suddenly things start to come together. And um, I'm not really mm, developing it or pushing it myself. I'm allowing something to happen. And then um, there's a wonderful moment when you start to glimpse there's a personality that's coming through. And now it's uh, my duty as the artist is to fulfill that vision, to make it real. I mean, to, um, to allow that, that particular personality to have its proper form. Wendy, could you talk about bringing that into three dimensions? Because the, the relationship between w what you do and what Brian does is really fascinating, I, I think. It, it's um, uh, analogous, in, in a sense, to childbirth, maybe. Well, I suppose it is in a way. Um, I find that when I, when I work with Brian's images, it's very important that they touch me in some way before I can make an image that will touch someone else in a similar way. I, I find there very occasionally images that I don't respond to. And I, I, find I have a very hard time then turning those into, into any kind of three-dimensional form. But usually, um, just if I sit with an image that Brian's made and start, start working then with clay and trying to bring it to life, um, I find that I can draw then on something within myself as well, add that to the mix, and come out with um, a character that is fully fledged once it's finished. 
<laughs> I, I really admire Wendy's work because she's one of the very few artists I know how, how she can capture soul in her work. And so when these uh, figures, she'd, you know, she'd be working away for a while and then she'd suddenly this, uh, she'd bring this figure down and we'd look at it and um, I would say, well, you can't sell this because it's now part of our family. There's a lot of work we do that we feel it is part and it, it, it is a, an extension of the world that we are trying to um, inhabit, I suppose. And so they are our children. And so consequently, we have a very crowded house. <laughs> You know, humans from the dawn of time have always believed there's something else around us that we can't see, and we've always tapped into that and worshipped it and feared it and imagined it and reimagined it, and sometimes we've actually discovered it as, you know, lions and tigers were myths until somebody went out and took a picture of them or took a shot at them. And you, in a sense, are, you know, our premier explorers of a world that's both external, but it's also internal, too. And that must, I, I wonder if you talk about that tension between the external, the, the things that you believe are out there and the things that you draw from within. There there's must be a, like a, a, a current flow, like electricity, that takes you back and forth. Where to start on that one is very, very difficult. Um, our work is often described as uh, fantasy art, and I deny that. I say it's, it's reality. We paint reality. Um, but it's an inner reality. Um, um, but where do we finish, and where does it start? I mean, we feel that we're all part of some continuum that we're in. And um, so what's inside is the, is the same that's outside, especially if you're dealing with the spirit of everything. So there's no separation. I think that often that's what we are talking about, um, when we, especially when we're dealing with fairies, is it's, it's all about connection and it's not separation. Um, people often want to dismiss um, the imagination. They think, it, oh, it's just imagination. Well, this is an extraordinary facility that human beings have. Without imagination, there is nothing because um, you just walk out into the street and be mown down by a car if you, had, if you didn't have imagination. That's how we get through life and this is how we survive. But it's how we articulate the nuances of life, how we articulate how things have meaning and purpose. And so um, this is what we're trying to do. Wendy, could you talk uh, about, you are uh, literally creating um, the something that's essentially a spirit and, and materializing spirit, and, and that must you must feel that there's some connection to all the other people and all the other things that are out there that have that have materialized spirit. Gosh, I don't know how to start. I'm I I feel very much a connection with all of that. I feel a connection with any maker of things from the earliest, earliest stone, bone, wood carvings, the little figures, the fetishes that people have always made to embody spirit. I think that's so important to feel a connection with that. And I think in all of my work, um, 
I hope that comes through, that we, we hold hands through the ages back to the first man, the first woman who picked up a stone and thought it looked like something that was important and meant something to them. Now, you know, you guys work in just a, a every media possible, and, and you work together in every media possible. And so there's this kind of a, a synthesis between you two. I think that's incredibly unique in the artistic world, <laughs> <laughs> really. And I'm wondering um, how, could you talk about how this started and how it, maybe tell me a little bit how it developed? Well, we've, we've just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary. Wow. So we really have been working together for an awfully long time. Um, and it started because we were both hired to work on the Dark Crystal. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that experience. That, that was a life-changing movie for, for many of us and, and our children as well. Uh, yes, it was. I mean, we've been talking about this recently, but it's, it was um, the film. We made this film uh, with Jim Henson because that was the movie we all wanted to see. I mean, it was as simple as that. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine that's what you could do nowadays. But that's how I went. Wendy, she was hired specifically to um, bring uh, a different quality to what the Muppets were doing. And Jim saw my work and asked me to come. And we met in New York on the first day uh, they started. And so um, it was a small group of us, sat around about nine, I suppose, of um, Muppet builders, and there was Wendy, and then they gradually brought in some uh, other sculptors. And I sat there and doodled in sketchbooks as uh, Jim and Frank, uh, Frank Oz, uh, would uh, come in and talk about uh, potential characters and what they might do. Uh, being Jim and Frank, uh, they just wanted lots of monsters <laughs> and to make them worse, <laughs> make them stranger. And so I was happy to oblige there. And I was left to, to try to make the pretty ones. <laughs> <laughs> so I not only was drawing, but I also did some um, maquettes and models of um, the Skeksis and the, and the Mystics. Um, but we were developing um, techniques and uh, we were trying to push the boundaries of puppet making. So we were exploring a lot. So we did a lot of um, prototype work. And so Wendy was uh, sculpting um, various things early on and making things as we were discovering how to do it, what sort of scale it was. We just didn't know then, did we? No, but we had the luxury, and it was a great luxury of time, which I don't think film has at all now. But Jim allowed us really to work for years on development. And uh, I think we ended up with a much more interesting and complex film because of that. And so we, uh, and in those days, it was mainly sort of gaffer tape and bicycle cables and bits of string. And um, later on... Uh, Very high tech at that point. Yeah. Well, it was. It, <laughs> it was. It worked. But uh, gradually it moved into uh, electronics. But in the early days, it was very direct. And, um, and it was um, great to be able to um, develop things uh, in costume that, um, that somehow indicated uh, personality. And the costumes I designed had various functions. One of the major functions was the hide stuff, was that uh, to manipulate these things, to make you believe they were alive, we had lots of people hiding behind bits of costume, and, uh, and we had to hide 
bits of the cabling and so um, and then because the the other problem is weight you know we wanted to put all this detail on but we had to be make it out of various things that were still had was light that we weren't you know, s making the puppeteers uh, you know, suffer too much, suffer too much. <laughs> so, yeah. well it's such a, a unique uh, fantasy vision I think in the the entire oeuvre of uh, fantasy literature the dark crystal stands out as being one of the most unique and and entertaining and beautiful um, pieces of work. Uh, I, I have to ask about the Skeksis. They were just the most awesome. And I was glad <laughs> to hear you say monsters because I'm a giant monster fan. That's just, you know, give me a good monster. <clears throat> and I can pretty much ignore the rest of the movie. But that, these, are, these monsters have something that almost no other monster has ever had in the history of cinema, and that is character. They were they were they were they weren't people, but they had dis very distinct characters. Talk about creating and humor. Yeah, talk about creating monsters with, who have personality. Boy, actually, it was it was difficult because um, what I'm trying to do in the design of these things is that when you look at their faces, you look at a mystic's face or a skeksis face, um, they're amalgams of all sorts of things. So, um, you know, there is, because uh, originally at one stage they were more rept very reptilian, then there was um, some fish <laughs> elements came in, then there's um, uh, all sorts of other things came in. So when you look at them, they should be have some sense of recognition. You sort of think you should know them, but not quite figure out why you know them. Um, so there's that element, and then it becomes problematical because we've just invented this new shape, I mean this new type of um, being and now you've got to make each one individual. But somehow in this uh, new area, new, vi new visual area, that each one is distinctive enough <laughs> that we can recognize them and so that was, I mean it was fun to try and do, but it was, it was a challenge. You know Wendy, you had a, I think arguably the more difficult job because one of the things I think it, it's if you're kind of a monster geek like me you show me a slime drippy monster and, and Skeksis are that in spades I not so much slime but just monster <laughs> um, uh, and, and I'm engaged to make a, a, a fascinating and beautiful monster is something very very difficult that that grabs us so talk about what you did to make the 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 gelfs and, and and some of the other creatures uh, of the dark crystal to make them uh, fascinating and grotesque but still beautiful. Well, I don't think I don't think I'd call the gelflings monsters, but they certainly are uh, otherworldly, uh, and it was a huge challenge. It really was because they were also the characters that um, we didn't. We didn't quite know how to approach them. Jim didn't quite know what he wanted them to be. He wanted them to be beautiful. He wanted them to be, have a lot of human qualities and yet not be human. But luckily, I do sculpt very quickly, so I could just, you know, sculpt one. Everybody would look at it, say, no, no, change this. I'd change it and then sculpt more and more. I sculpted many, many of them before we got to what we all 
sort of agreed would work as characters. The pod people, which I also had a hand in, um, are just, they, they're grotesque, but they need to be charming. And I think maybe, maybe charm comes into a, a lot of it with the Gelflings and, and the pod people. And, and actually most of the characters in The Dark Crystal, they do all have a certain charm, even in, even the most grotesque ones, even Agra mm -hmm. is charming in her own very strange way. And all the Skeksis are charming too, even if they're grotesque and, and awful. I think yeah, and it's that quality of humor mm -hmm. again that, that works for them so well, I think. Now, this was your first opportunity to work together, and, and you continue to do so afterwards. Could you talk about, I, I mean, the kind of vision you have of fairy reminds me a bit of, uh, it's obvious, you know, there's Rockham, but uh, the, the, the name that comes to me is Arthur Mockham, who has a, a kind of a, his vision of fairy is neither good nor evil, comprised of both. There's a kind of a gray vision. It's just um, what H.P. Lovecraft called wrong. It's just not something we can quite wrap our brains around. And I think that's one of the things you capture very well between the two of you, is this sensibility of something that is really definitely not of this world. Mm. Well, it seemed to me um, for a long time, fairies have uh, been relegated to the nursery that it was, they were just felt to be childish. And this is patently not so in folklore. They're dangerous creatures. Um, they're creatures that have to be placated. You have to leave food, sources of milk out. Um, otherwise, they, your cattle will sicken and die, and your children would either die or be stolen. So they were dangerous folk that you had to deal with. And they just were there to remind us that we have to pay attention. We have to pay attention to our environment, how we live it. And that's what they keep demanding of us. But as they're like children of, of nature, children of the world, um, just as you wouldn't um, declare, say, a raging torrent, a raging river as evil, it's just in its nature to be um, that it can drown you. And you have to, you have to show it respect, and so all these spiritual uh, beings want respect, and so they are ambivalent mm, um, uh, in in their nature, um, and it all depends how you deal with them. Yeah, because they do. I mean, they certainly do choose to help at times. They can bestow many, many gifts. Although the gifts can also be two-edged. That's one of the things that interests me about. Uh, the the world of fairies is, is the morals of the fairy world. It, it's a it's a kind of I think almost a capitalistic world. There there's a there's an exchange, but there's a price for everything as well. And, and I think that you guys kind of capture that in your visions of, of them. And, and I'm thinking of, of you know the the good in your your book about the good and bad fairies, where you we see this kind of balance um, between the two. And it's and it is an exchange, isn't it? Yes, I think indeed there is a price to pay, but um, the problem is with fairies is that there are no rules. Um, and this is really problematical. But they demand something. I mean, there is a tit for tat, there is a, um, an, a, 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 an equal exchange. But um, what exactly that is, you've got to figure out, because they are tricky 
beings. They will ask you questions or give you something as a gift, but now you've got to figure out how, what the price is to pay. And, and do you want to pay it? See, it may be a simple thing or it may be a big thing. So you really want to try to figure it out before you accept it. Mm. A problem often is accepting the gift and then, then having that moment of, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Too late. <laughs> so if you're dealing with fairies, it's quite a moral, to me it's a very moral thing, is that because there are no rules, you've got to figure it out on every single moment. You've got to know what is the right thing to do. Yes, at that moment, at the moment that you're in. I think it's very important that it really is about being here now. It's about living right now, right this minute, because that's where they exist. That's a really, now that's an interesting point, because there's, uh, a lot of, uh, I think, the fairy lore is just filled with time dilations and distortions and, you know, moving backwards and forwards and whipping around in little circles in time. Uh, could you talk about how the aspect of timelessness and time slips in the world of fairy informs your visions both as artists and writers? Gosh. Um, well, time is an elusive thing. As we know in fairy that you can spend time in fairyland and when you come back from it, you find that seven years have passed, if you're lucky. Um, it might be 70 and you're not so lucky and your life's over. But that's, that's truthfully, that's what happens to so many people, that they don't wake up in their lives. It's only when it's nearly over, they suddenly pay attention and think, oh, I blew it, I missed it, didn't I? So fairies are saying, well, you really got to pay attention the whole way through here. So um, their, uh, their time is, is different to us. I mean, because I think they are, many of them are eternal beings. Some aren't, some they have their own time scale. Yeah. You know, um, Wendy, I, I wanted to talk to you about the, the process, of, uh, your process of sculpting, because the technology has changed greatly I, I think over the years and in some ways it's it's we have all these fabulous new things you can do 3d printers uh, and, and but still um, what really matters is I think what I would might call the uh, the page maker or the Photoshop effect where if you have somebody who doesn't have a vision but can yet you can you can print out a piece of paper with that looks like a that's something that was in a book yet it can be complete gibberish, and you can do the same thing with, with all these high-tech art tools. Talk about bringing your artistic vision from the days of the dark crystal and before up to where we are now, and, and how you've coped with that. And how, has, it, has it helped you at all? Does, does the it's, new technology help you? Do you use it? Still actually, I, I actually, I don't at the moment, because really, um, I'm not. I'm not working with any new technology. I'm. I'm. I'm sculpting in, in polymer clay. I'm sculpting using fabrics and and all the things that I did before, but I'm not applying them to film work at the moment. Mm. I'm. I'm making objects that are just real and there, and they go out into the world, you know, in exhibitions, in museums, or or to be, you know, sold and and hopefully loved by whoever buys them, but um, I, I don't find that I have much contact with that right now. We live out in the middle of Dartmoor. We don't, uh, 
we don't, we, we use mud and clay and string and twine. No, we don't, but, <laughs> <laughs> but we're not really that technical. Well, when we were working on dark crystal and labyrinths, I mean, it's the, one of the challenges for me. I am right from the beginning somehow intuitively realized it, I couldn't just do a drawing and walk away. That was not going to work. And so it was important to um, set um, um, a seal almost uh, of what the character is, but that needed to be very loose at the beginning because its final form was going to arrive much later and through various means and through technologies, some of them soft technologies, some hard. And so my task was to supervise and ride that as, and I would use anything that, came along, anything that seemed uh, was interesting um, and I could use in terms of the characterization of it. And so um, now we're moving into um, more like the three-dimensional. I mean, I've worked on um, some 2D animation things where people just haven't understood that there is a, something else that happens from just a simple drawing to get it onto a screen. There is something you have to keep working at to make sure that its inner character and its inner soul is not lost in the process, that it arrives intact onto the screen. And it's sort of obvious that um, most people don't get that. <laughs> you can see it, especially now with uh, 3D animation. Um, it's a real skill and um, to, to get it to uh, have a life or integrity on the screen. Um, and when we're hoping because um, we were hoping just to be starting on Dark Crystal 2 um, that would involve puppets and CGI. And, um, you know, I'm trying to, we're trying to put some of that feeling we got in the original Dark Crystal technology into more modern technologies. So ask us again yeah. in uh, a year. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but this is, I, mean, you, you, I think, you, a very interesting question. Um, where is the magic in all these things? I mean, when in our, the, the heart of the fairy oracle deck, it's just a bit of cardboard with some colored ink on it and then some sort of arrangement of form. And um, there's nothing, no magic there, except when you open up the box, it all comes tumbling out. The, the, the fairy energy comes flying out. And why? What, what is it? What is it? This is a mysterious thing that happens. It ha we think it happens from intent and how you actually make the physical things, how you draw it, how you paint it, you put intention in it, you try to somehow touch or articulate a true moment, a true thing, and that always shines through in whatever your technology is, we think. So um, right now we have uh, iPhone apps for Heart of Fairy, and so there's a, that's modern technology, and that somehow allows you to go directly uh, to this space where uh, fairy space and our space are intersecting. But we, in, but in particular, we feel that the cards, um, as physical objects, have another quality to them. There's something that you not you just look at, but you feel, you feel something from them. There's something you can actually physically just touch to your heart, and feel connected to fairies. 
this is a really interesting project, this the heart of the Perry Oracle. And I wanted to, to talk about this because, um, as you say, there's something about these this uh, a deck of cards that has a kind of a primal appeal to, to humans and always has, from tarot or playing cards all, all the way through to this. Now, when you're realizing these, these cards, creating them, um, could you talk about uh, the, the selection of characters and the selection of moods that each card creates? Do you, you must create them in some kind of order. No, I mean, this particular deck is, um, there is, although there's some new work in it specifically for it, there is also um, part of the history of, of my painting. Um, and so Wendy was really very much part of uh, selecting the images that, w that went in. Could you talk about uh, being your husband's editor? <laughs> well, it's always an interesting thing to try to do that. Um, I went through the, I, we just, well, how can I say, we, de we decided to use the um, Brian Froud's World of Fairy, which is an enormous book of images, both past images and, and very recent ones, as the basis for this deck. And uh, there were so many wonderful images that I spent a long time looking through the book and trying to decide what they said and how to categorize them. And it just seemed to work to, to break them up into the queens and consorts and um, archetypes, sprites. They're various, they're various sets of cards within the whole deck. Um, and then to find an image that, that spoke to me I would find a title for it and then bring that back to Brian and say, well, what do you think? How does this, how does this sound to you? Does it, does it make sense with your images? So we work together on each, on each image. There are um, over 60 images, so it was, it was quite, a, quite a job. You know, uh, an oracle like this, is, it's half of what you do, and it's half also what your audience, what the, what the the viewer, the, the reader, brings to it as they, as you say, as they open up the box and, and let the magic out. They, that magic exists uh, in part because they're able to see it and experience it. And they're bringing with them the experience of your other work. So could you talk about, um, we have 60 images in, in, in this, this work, but it's, these are like 60 windows into a, a, a wider world of your work. A and it strikes me that there's a, y you must have some, have had some feedback from, from, your, from your readers and just from your friends and from yourselves uh, experience to, to choose these as a kind of windows in which, because the, an oracle is something that you want to see what's going to happen in your life. I mean, I'm not looking at, at these cards to figure out what's going to happen in your guys' mm -hmm. lives. I'm looking at this to try to get a, a hold on where, what's happening with me. Um, I'm going to backtrack slightly because when I paint um, these images, um, it seems to me very important that it's not what I would call finished. Uh, I paint in such a way that it's open. 
I keep the energy open, I keep the way I paint open, I keep everything open. Um, and it, it means that when the viewer looks at it, it, the viewer has to put in some information of their own, get it to make sense. So the, each time they look at it, it will be different because they're part of the picture. They're part of what's going on in it. And so that's really important, we discovered, is that it's the, the cards um, create a relationship with the image, create a relationship with the fairies themselves. That, um, you know, that we talk about it as a portal, as a way in. I'm always aware when I paint the pictures of the edges. The edges of my paintings are always really important because there's always something going on just off the edge. And you want to know about that. And the other, other bit of the edge is that fairies always want to come in. They're coming in from the other side. They always want to crowd in to the picture. And so there, there are lots of personalities that are demanding some attention. So um, it's not our job to um, pin it down, to tell people precisely mm -hmm. what this means. We can give indications of it, but it's, um, it's a way in to um, to a place where there are revelations and understandings and where you feel really connected to to yourself and to the world uh, and I hope that the writing um, really makes people question things that's what it's there for it's not there to tell you it's there to make you find out for yourself. You have, to, you have to stop and think about it. Think about what that image is, think about what the words that are written are saying to you, and then figure it out, because it's not gonna give you the answer, it's gonna give you a way to find an answer. Now that's very interesting. You know, when Brian was talking about the edges of his paintings, it made me think that there must be an analogous experience for you as a sculpture, sculptor, that when you're creating a doll, that, that creation is seeing something that is not there, that is not there present when you are there necessarily, nor is it present when the person who views it is there. And could you talk about how that kind of vision, does that inform how, how you create these, these things? I, I suppose it does in a way. Um, when I create things, what I don't like to do is capture a moment. I don't like to sculpt something that has a fixed, you know, expression of, of laughter or surprise or horror or anything on its face. What it's doing is maybe, again, a moment in between something. It's either going to happen or it has happened or it's waiting to happen. But then the, the person who's looking at it and experiencing this work has to make some effort to to figure out what's happening, because it isn't always the same thing that's happening when you look at these. They, I think they, you know, they have a life of their own. They're not always caught laughing, and they like to just be able to be there and exist. You know, one of the things about uh, the fairy world is it's very sensual. Uh, it's filled with, with scents and odors and tastes and potions, and there's a lot of focus on consumption and eating and uh, just the, uh, the sensual experience of the world. Um, when you're creating an image, or even a sculpt 
sculpture, it has no odor, it has no taste. If you're four years old, it might have a taste. But uh, so talk about um, evoking these the sensual aspect of of the fairy world in images and in sculptures. Those those parts that we that mm. they can't actually do. We're and unless you've got some uh, odorama stuff out there. <laughs> I think you can. Well, with the sculptures anyway, I think you can do that with with the way the the skin texture looks you can it if i if i make skin that looks like you want to touch it then that's a sensation if if you know the clothing is is made of brocade or velvet or silk again it's a sensual thing you know that it's sensual just by looking at it i don't really particularly want people to come up and touch them all the time but they but they should feel like if they did they would be experiencing something um, sensual about it. And, and of course, um, some of the other creatures, the trolls or the goblins or whatever, if you, you should feel like if you touch them, your hand might come away smelling funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a smell of the earth. Or of the earth, or <laughs> cheese. Or oh, cheese, <laughs> cheese in particular. Brian, uh, you, you apparently are a, a kind of a, a guy who likes monsters. Tell us your favorite kind of monsters that are not yours, maybe, and, and um, the ones that you have created. Oh Lord, I'm not sure. I'm. I mean, I, I can't help the way um, my things turn out, you know. So I, I guess I don't always think of them as monsters. I know in Dark Crystal over the years, uh, we um, people said, "Well, that that movie scared me." We, it wasn't our intention to scare anybody, but we didn't. We I guess we just thought they were funny. I suppose. Um, I'm always intrigued by witches and trolls, I suppose. It's because they really, I think my, again, they've all got a twinkle in their eye. There's always something going on, or they've got some, got some failings. They don't always win in their, uh, in their personalities somehow. So they always seem to be reflections of, um, not just human traits, but I mean, of just of shapes. I mean, I think there's beauty, I find beauty in, so many things, especially anything that's creative or sparks creativity off. You know, Leonardo da Vinci talks about how um, creative um, stains are on walls. He, he, you know, he would see landscapes and indeed faces, and I do it the same way. I, I see faces everywhere and everything, but that's, that's a human um, activity to want to like to put maybe put order to the chaos, really. To, to give shape um, to something that seems to be chaotic. So my so-called, I don't always see them as being ugly. I know I've taken offense um, when people have described some of the things that I've done as ugly, and I go, they're not ugly, look again, just look. Yeah. And it's because they want you to accept some aspect of them. Um, and we we do play around a lot with what is what is ugly. I mean, and what is beautiful, and there is a, is there any difference? I don't sure there is really. I, I wouldn't say there is, and, no. and I frankly think the the Skeksis are, are for me, for example, are every bit as beautiful as the Gelflings, and, and, and they're just different. Mm. Um, when I use the term monster, I mostly mean that to refer to something that's not. I'm neither human nor animal nor identifiable. We, you know, something that you can't 
It's, it's, it's not a bear. It's not a nurse. And it's, and it's not, a, not a soda tray. Well, that's, that's the sort of thing I want to see. I mean, it's precisely that. Or that's the sort of thing I want to express because it's something you've never quite seen before. It's quite wonderful because that's what fairies are. They exist in the in-between. So they're in-between ugly or, and beautiful. Or they're living in-between the spaces. They're always in-between. So they're always in those moments of, it's like in, well, any moment. That's why they live at the bottom of the garden. Fairies live at the bottom of the garden. Why is that? Well, the garden is order. Beyond the garden is disorder and, and wilderness. So that's where they are. They live on the borders. They live in the twilight, between day and night. They appear at midnight. They appear at noon. They appear at any moment between moments of decision and indecision. Between breathing in and breathing out, they're there. They're always in those liminal spaces and that's why they always are very much part of creativity. Ta tell, me, tell us a little bit about the dark crystal too. I mean there's a lot of us who are super extremely thrilled by the prospect of this and this was something you know that for you, it's, it's like a, it's literally a wedding anniversary in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, I thought of it that <laughs> That's way. right. Well, we're hoping it's still going on. I mean, as far as we know, I mean, I have done some designs for it. Um, I think we'll find out more at Comic-Con. Yeah. Um, I know some, um, I know, like Dark Crystal is an extraordinary film because it's, um, it's all puppets. And it's, that's why it's, I think, absolute classic as well that, Maybe that'll never happen again because even on Labyrinth we were pushing technology beyond. But and so some people have expressed um, maybe disappointment that it might not all be a puppet film, that it's got um, digital stuff in it. But Jim Henson um, was always pioneering. He was always looking into other technologies to be expressive for what he wanted. And if he was alive today, he'll he would be going way beyond anything we could imagine. I mean, as, you know, if you think Avatar is an, an advance, I'm sure Jim would have been way ahead of that. And so, um, you know, it's the, we're quite looking forward to the working with the technologies. Um, as well as puppets, it will be a combination yes. of, of many different techniques. I right, think. And, but so it is intriguing though to come back to this world. I mean, cause both Wendy and I um, like to look forward to, to uh, developing new ideas and doing things. And so it's uh, an interesting challenge to step seemingly backwards into something, into a world that we've been visited. But that's why we got intrigued and have been uh, contributing is, well, why would we return to this world? Why? Because when we left it, it was a paradise. And now something's gone wrong. And, and what's gone wrong is um, is what's going to draw everybody in. Uh. <laughs> I'm taking that uh, that aspect of the story is is uh, no, it's it's been out on everybody and on the internet and it's been announced. But say no more. No, no. In specifics, though, you'll have to find out. One of the things that uh, you guys do well is not just fairy characters, but you also have some extremely memorable human characters. I'm thinking of Lady Coddington and her collection. 
Oh, right. So, <laughs> I mean, it takes a very certain kind of human to do that. So talk about creating those books. <laughs> well, um, it was um, an interesting problem because I've been working with fairies most of my life, and um, this is how I express something as an artist. And so there, was, there is a lot of resistance um, to the very word fairy. Um, and um, because people just have a preconceived idea of what fairies are. But once they see what I do, they, then they feel differently about it. So there was a lot of resistance about doing another fairy book, and I couldn't get a publisher interested. But then I was lucky uh, enough to find um, uh, Lady Coddington and, and, and her works, in which um, Lady Coddington was... Uh, busy writing things in her diary uh, about life and uh, and then suddenly um, there were these pesky fairies were sneaking in and trying to read her writing and getting in the way and she would just suddenly go <coughs> shut the book and um, found that she was squashing and indeed pressing fairies and um, she became quite an expert at this and for years and years developed a large collection of press fairies. However, um, what happened in, that, in those moments of Lady Connington and the press fairy book, I always say, although this book involves a lot of humor, it, they're metaphysical books. Because what's happening in the moment of uh, most people are in disbelief of fairies. Once you express that a fairy might be um, squashed, in the book, they are horrified. It's because they care about the fairies now. They are now believing in fairies. I think that's a, one of the things I love about your approach is this kind of uh, what you'd have to call a metafictional approach to to this whole subject. You take it uh, seriously enough so that we can believe and also so that we can uh, grow through your fictional and your imaginational creations that that um, it, we all know it's a, it's an old saw that the best sometimes you have to lie to tell the truth well that's precisely what the books are about especially in the later ones about what is truth and what is untruth um, and is this made up or is it real and does it matter especially when you're dealing with metaphysics because sometimes you've got to fake it to make it, you, it gets you into the space when it then it really happens. And so we talk a lot about in the later books about what happens in the, the Cottington, Cottington family, and you have to make your own mind up about what the events mean. Now, will you be doing any more uh, work together uh, in terms of the writing, and, and will we see a? Uh, uh, sequel to The Heart of the Fairy Oracle? Have, are you working on that right now? Are we working on it right now? Brian's, Brian's nodding and I'm shaking my head. No, we, I think we certainly will work together on more things. We've, we have enjoyed that very much and it's, uh, other people seem to enjoy it as well. Um, and we do. We've got we plans. Do, we, yeah, we do, but they're just really formulating now. We, yeah. have, we don't have anything solid. No, I mean, another oracle deck is uh, definitely something we want to do. Um, I'm, we're just really interested in um, in images and that communicate. 
idea and communicate directly to people. Um, it's a subject that we that we're not going to be leaving. That we're continuing. I'm in the middle of doing a book called How to See Fairies um, that has um, some mechanicals in it, um, lenticular things, and it's and the idea is it will put you. Uh, into a hopefully the right frame of mind by the time you finish the book you are ready to see your first real fairy that sounds uh, quite wonderful um, I'm wondering if you could uh, talk about um, as one of the things that strikes me is that we have in, in the media now you cannot escape vampires and if you you can escape zombies, but only the slow-moving <laughs> ones. Mm. And it's my intuition that I think that fairies are poised, I think, for the same kind of uh, cultural uh, permeation. And I think they are actually a more powerful image and can speak to a wider uh, spectrum of people than either vampires or, or uh, zombies because they are more complicated. They're more like humans, and they also have a, a much deeper um, spiritual aspect. And you guys will be the avatars, as it were, uh, of that uh, cultural invasion. Well, actually, we've been working away for years and trying to get people to pay attention to this sort of particular area because um, we do feel very strongly um, that fairies aren't just over there somewhere. They're here right now and that they are on a street corner somewhere. I mean, that, um, that they are uh, dangerous beings that sort of can mingle amongst us and you don't know quite know that they're there. Um, but they're very diverse. There's so many, many, oh, types of fairy. Yes. So um, we have been trying. So yes, I feel absolutely. Yeah, now is definitely the time. Time is definitely the time to do it now, uh, where you have like um, yeah, dangerous, um, beautiful, <laughs> strange uh, fairies. Yeah. Well, I mean, but bring it on. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. Because um, uh, people often talk about fairy stories, and they always think it's different. And I go, well, no. I mean, there's nothing different about a fairy story. It's the same. Everything you see on a, in a film or on a, on a TV is a fairy story. You know, it's fiction. It's been made up. But ours takes real spirit, real passions, and, um, and illuminates the human condition. This is what it's all about. But um, I think people have rather forgotten. They think vampires are dangerous, but really fairies are much more dangerous because they not only involve the heart, but they involve passion as well, don't they? Well, vampires involve a lot of passion. Well, he's not a vampire. Maybe there's maybe there's some more shiny bits in the, with the fairies then. All right, more wings. More wings. Not bat wings either. Not no, bat not bat wings. Well, maybe sometimes. Maybe sometimes. I've been speaking with Brian and Wendy Froud. Their latest book is, or their latest creation is, the heart of the fairy oracle. Thank you for joining me, Brian and Wendy. Thank you very much. It's been our pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>